Welcome to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm Melissa Joy, a certified financial planner and founder of Pearl Planning. And I'm Melissa Friedenberg, financial advisor with Pearl Planning. Pearl Planning is a financial planning and investment management company located in Dexter and Gross Point, Michigan. We work with clients all around the country. The purpose of our podcast is to explore specific financial topics and provide advice you can use in your everyday life. Hello, and welcome to the 52 Pearls Weekly Money Wisdom Podcast. This is Melissa Fradenberg in the Gross Point office. And this week, we have a very special guest, Liz Derrick. Liz is Vice President of Partnership Development with LPL. Liz is responsible for both the Independent Advisor Services and Financial Institution Services at LPL. And she is instrumental in introducing credit unions and banks to options that provide greater opportunity for growth and expansion. She's passionate about the importance of providing credit union and bank members with a financial and investment program. Melissa Joy knows Liz professionally. We recently saw a story regarding her daughter, which we're going to share today on this podcast and really kind of talk about not only her personal experience, but how that can help others really prepare proper estate planning documents in place so that your wishes, uh, should something happen to you, be honored. Liz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I really appreciate being here. Now, I heard your story on the news, and we're going to link in the show notes press around your experience. But I felt our listeners really would benefit from hearing about it because it pulled on my heartstrings. The story of what happened with your daughter, Molly, again, 17 years ago. Take me back to that. Well, my daughter was 25 at the time and she had called me and said, mom, I'm just not feeling well. And I have a pain between my shoulders and my back and it's just not going away. It's worse. I need to go to the emergency room and get it checked out. So she went to one emergency room. You know, they basically just told her to keep an eye on things and and send her home. And again, continue to get worse and have more difficulties. So she went to another emergency room with her dad this time. And she ended up at Garden City Hospital, which, which was really great. They took an x-ray, found that she had pneumonia. They admitted her and uh, started her on some antibiotics and was just going to keep an eye on her. The following morning at 2.30, I received a phone call from a nurse stating that my daughter had such difficulty breathing and she was virtually crashing that they had asked her um, if it was okay if they put her on temporary life support because um, her vitals were dropping so rapidly. She had agreed to go on life support. In the meantime, I rushed to her bedside And when I walked in virtually, they were attempting to intubate her and she was blue, not really knowing the source or what's happening. And two minutes that I was virtually there with her, I knew that we were in real trouble. I couldn't stay, of course, because I was actually more of a distraction to what was going on. But during that time, I knew that she was in bad shape. So the doctors then, um, came out telling me to call my family. And so what started as 
obviously cold-like symptoms and then pain between shoulder blades turned into a life or death situation. Her brother was um, actually serving in the war and we just kind of had to put things on hold for a couple more hours till we learn more. And then the doctor came out and said, I want you to be able to see her, but I have to tell you, and it, and this is a young doctor, probably about in his mid forties and he's weeping. You know, Ms. Derek, I have to tell you, honestly, don't know how she's alive, but I'm going to do everything in my power. And the only thing I can think of is to get you to University of Michigan, a medevac, because her lungs are filled, completely filled with fluid and she's shut down. I don't know how she's alive. She was later diagnosed with a viral cardiomyopathy, but did they have answers at this point or they just didn't know what no. was causing this? No, they were looking at the lungs. They, She was in total lung failure and they have a program at U of M, um, ECMO, which actually helps to take the fluid um, out. And he thought if he could get her qualified for this ECMO, she might stand a chance. So we... There we were, calling family, um, waiting, and going through this whole process. Um, I can remember, I I literally had oh, maybe about three minutes with her when she was in between being stable and coding. And I sat with her and I just told her, fight. I just said, fight for your life. We then had her, had been told to say goodbye to her, literally, because the life flight could have, could kill her as yeah. well. So we had a lot of goodbyes that, that day. And it was really kind of surreal. Like you're, you're thinking, are you really, are you in a movie? What's, how is my 25 year old being life medevaced, you know, to you them? And um, as soon as I got to U of M, uh, my brother had taken me and they sat me in the room and here she is hooked to literally 11 IVs. And there were six people working on her and they, the top doctors were there and they're all just in disbelief and not trying to figure out the puzzle. And this went on. I literally lived there. For weeks at a time but that first week was so unbelievable and by the third day they came to me and, and said you know I have to tell you we could try this ECMO but she's not getting any better so we went through all the things that they had tried and then we discussed what took place at Garden City and I had said to uh, the doctor at the time you know the doctor said he had done a brief ultrasound echo on her heart and thought that at some point you should check this particular area further, do another study because that they noted something. He noted so you something. as her mom brought this up from the conversation. Correct. Okay. So, so I had just related what this doctor, this young doctor had told me just as we were leaving. And, you know, obviously you're in this brain fog and it's not something I remembered right away. It was only after nothing worked. So they did it right away. They found that 
her whole left heart, that left ventricle was not working. And her ejection fraction was literally at less than 20%. And now they began the whole change. We moved her from the lung unit to the cardiac unit. Then I met with the transplant doctors because they literally felt that at this stage that we were looking at a a full heart transplant. Wow. A couple of things to think about. One, advocating for your daughter. And then also as a mom, I love the fact that you were the one that brought this up. And now, granted, you said not right away, because as you mentioned, it was like you're in a movie, you're getting a lot of information and you're in complete shock, but you remember what the doctor said about that test on her heart. And that absolutely had to have saved her life if you hadn't mentioned that. So I love that from a mom's perspective that that you brought that up. Um, Unfortunately, my daughter had a lot of uh, what they call some anoxic injury or brain injury which is really scary, you know, and what does that look like? You know, they call it posturing or her nervous system. So we were evaluating the scenario and she's on a ventilator and she wasn't able to come off of it like normal per se, even with the heart problem. And that's why the transplant team was involved. And um, so let's say now we're at the end of our first week and our concern as parents was, what if she has another, she codes. I mean, she was, she literally ran a fever of 106 and they, they weren't able to really make a lot of progress. So we're even after you had the diagnosis, even after we had the diagnosis and they thought they were on the right road. She was in such critical care that um, we were concerned about her coding again and her having more brain injury. We couldn't, we didn't have a say. Now and talk to me about when did you realize that you that you were going to have some issues with not having medical power attorney? Because we talked about as a family, if she coded again, would we want them to continue to bring her back so many times, wondering whether she is going to live or die another minute? She's hanging on again by another thread. And and you're talking heart you, transplants and just heart much transplants serious. And, and you're saying you know, we need to have the say to say enough is enough. And when we had this discussion, we were told we didn't have a say then. That it was really up to the hospital to make her medical decisions because we didn't have any powers in place. And I said, you know, that's just not acceptable to us. I have to tell you that I want you to know what my daughter's wishes would be. And that's where this whole Terry Shivo case came into play. And very specifically is that in the Terry Shivo case, she was on life support and her family wanted her to remain on life support, period. Well, she was uh, brain injured and consummated as brain dead. And it's my understanding that the argument was that if this person is brain dead, we as the institution want to have the right to disconnect her And they were arguing that she didn't have any powers in place. You know, you as the parents, they had been recognizing the parents as guardians and giving them the say to that point. But the institution went to court and said, look it, 
these are thousands of dollars. We're keeping this shell of a person alive artificially. We want to have the right to make the decision when to pull the plug. And so that's where things fundamentally happened. As you can see how this played out, then the courts ruled in their favor and she was disconnected from life support. And the family wanted her to stay on life support. The family wanted her to remain on life support. So that's when the legal part of the institution became the power. Meaning you come to them for help, unless you have something in writing, we are going to retain the power to say when you can and cannot come off of life support or to do what they felt was in the best interest. My daughter did not have powers in place and we did ask for emergent help. She was medevaced and airlifted to University of Michigan because she did and she was in such dire critical care. If she continued to code, we wanted the right to say, let her go. Right. And we didn't have that right. By having those documents in place, once your children turn 18, then you know that you are doing what's in child wants, right? And so to have that conversation, to have those documents drafted, you probably have that conversation as much as you don't want to think of the what ifs, but it does force you to have that conversation, which is important. My daughter was in an incapacitated state and she was going to have brain damage or any significant damage. She, She didn't want to exist in the world to be a burden, number one. And number two, there were signs that my daughter had anoxic brain injury, but we had no choice for ourselves. Right. So what what we had to do is we actually had to go to an ethics review committee meeting, which we formulated. And over 40 of our family members attended and had to testify that they knew her and what they all knew her rights would have been or how to guide the institution. How long when you realized the gravity of the situation that this she could continue to code and maybe, you know, get to the point where she would not. First week at the end of the first first week. week. So we did. We had that ethics review committee meeting. And um, then we were told we had to go to court and get guardianship of my daughter in order to be able to put a do not resuscitate in place. So it wasn't just the fact that we had the ethics review committee meeting. We literally had to go to court and get court order guardianship of my daughter in order for us to, to be able to prevail with her wishes. When you go to emergency room, and you ask for help in any way, shape, or form, and you're admitted to a hospital, which means you're asking for help, then if she didn't have her advocacy powers in place, she lost her rights. At that point in time, the hospital- You gave your rights to the hospital at that point. You gave the rights to the hospital to make those decisions, and which we're grateful. Obviously, they saved her life at that point. But when you have somebody in extreme critical care for such a long period of time is in a coma family or your parents you want to at least weigh in and we couldn't and that I mean so your daughter was 25 25 correct and I mean that's so young even at 18 19 I mean you can have kids that are in college and we all know I mean the stuff that goes on in college and that's scary to me that 
if my child, and they're still a child, even though they're legally an adult, uh, at 18, 19, goes to the emergency room, that that hospital then gets the say over their medical care if nothing is in place. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on to share your story, to really personalize it so that parents who are sending their kids off to college or have kids in their 20s that you know don't have these documents in place, and I will link some more information on that, but specifically we're talking about power of attorney when it comes to medical decisions, um, yes. that it's very important to have that in place so that you, you know, I just can imagine already an emotionally stressful situation having to have this um, ethics board meeting. And then on top of it, now you need to go to court. So tell me about that process. The very next day, I just went down to Detroit and, and got on the docket and had prepared paperwork and planned my case, um, of which then I had certain proofs that I had to take with me that were provided in cooperation with uh, the advocacy personnel of the hospital to help me so that I could actually get that um, guardianship, knowing that she was in uh, critical care. Again, that granted me the financial rights as well to help her pay her rent to her apartment or pay her car payment. At least I had something in writing or had some powers to be able to keep her life going while she was going through this. And I think that's just as important. Medical right. powers are one step, but eventually if if you were ever faced in a longer term and Molly was actually in a coma for um, probably, well, from November to about seven weeks, it's about six weeks. And then she came out of the coma before she was really, you know, so she was a couple of months really down, down. But when you're in a induced coma or in a coma for that period of time, who's going to take care of paying your bills? It doesn't matter um, who they are. It's really just naming someone that you're close to that you can trust and you have to build that trust. Maybe it's a CPA. Maybe it's a financial professional. You know, I think that it's very important. So I think it's the most important graduation gift, quite frankly, a parent can do for a child is really knowing that a part of high school to college is really setting some things down and getting some very basic paperwork that's not that expensive to get done in place. Absolutely. yourself peace of mind. I would not want anyone to have to go through what I went through I'm very grateful that my daughter ended up surviving. She did have brain anoxic injury. She was able to continue her college education and finish. Um, and she's got three beautiful children. None of it's been easy because she's, you know, challenged. But at the same time, with her family support, she's worked through all those things. And she's going to live to have a fairly normal life. This was 17 years ago, and it's still like the the emotions are raw. This is just such a, a traumatic experience. And I really, really appreciate you sharing it. Obviously, I want to promote, again, those documents that we recommend for everybody when we do financial planning for those adult children once they turn 18 is to get a durable power of attorney for the financial as well as medical and then an advanced health care directive. So those two documents are what you can have in place for these possibilities of what come up. But I do want to talk a little bit and and there's an event 
on March 10th, and we're going to link some information in the show notes. But if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about that. So if our listeners are listening and they want to either attend the event on March 10th or help support Detroit, Michigan, Go Red Luncheon at the Novi Expo Center. So uh, there will be an additional feature coming out this next week, anytime. Or February was actually Heart Month, you know, into March. They really celebrate it for all the way into the kickoff for women's um, Go Red program. So okay. it would be, there are links to on the Go Red that you can actually find on the internet um, to the Michigan Novi program where they're fundraising for obviously research and for the cause. That's really Southeast Michigan's largest fundraiser because it's $250 a plate, you know, for the ticket, which is obviously a contribution. And then they do have an auction. Um, they, They raise money, which is a live auction feature, which is really very nice. Contribute and or just make your... Uh, ticket donation, you know, a part of it where she's actually going to be featured and honored. So that what they do, and this is, we were invited last year as kind of a preempting, we didn't know she would be chosen, but she was chosen then afterwards to be the ambassador. So they feature her story. It's about a seven minute piece at the Michigan Heart Association where they filmed her for four and a half hours in different segments of her story. Part of it is is going to be live, is at the March 10th event. People buy tickets or just make donations? They- to purchase tickets online or to make a contribution. So it's really to come to the event to see and to participate in the full story and to honor her, as well as to make the donation to the Michigan Heart Association. Uh, they can do so. And that is just an, a great honor that uh, your daughter was chosen for that and to continue to, to take some positive out of her experience by um, sharing her story and, and making sure that people understand. Had Molly not, you know, continued to go back, she had that pain behind, you know, between her shoulder blades. Who knows what age you can be to and know what the symptoms of potential heart problems are. Also, to make more women aware that they may suffer from a heart problem and they just may not know it and what some of those signs and symptoms are. So um, it can happen to any one of us at a, at a certain age. And cardiomyopathy is, you know, there we see athletes who die from cardiomyopathy. Just it's really to learn more about your own heart health. I really appreciate you sharing your story with our listeners here. Um, And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. You can access our first two seasons of this podcast on our website at www.pearlplan.com or on Spotify. If you're interested in learning more about Pearl Planning, feel free to sign up for our newsletter also found on our website.